Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to yet another episode of the Good Life Radio Podcast. Today, the 20th day of August, 2015, coming to you in the midst of a heat wave here in New York City. The phone number is always 607-203-5330. If you listen to my show before, you know that I'm passionate about a few things in life. A few members of my family, but mostly traveling, reading, and of course sports. And that's why I'm beyond stoked for tonight's show. My guest somehow incorporated all three of those things in his tremendous book titled Gaddafi's Point Guard. Rather than me bore you and give a cliff note summary about his book, let's talk to the author, star basketball player, and pretty much the star of the book. I'm humbled and privileged to have him on my show. Let me plug him on right now. Alex Owumi, what's going on, my brother? How you doing, brother? How's everything going? Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Thank you. First of all, thank you for coming on my show. And I want to tell you how much I no truly problem. enjoyed enjoyed your book. Title, like I just said, Gaddafi's Point Guard. It was it's a roller coaster of emotion and raw, some funny stuff, and sports. <laughs> the reviews you got on it. Were you were you happy with the reviews you got on the book? I mean, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm always happy. I always encourage people to uh, give me honest reviews, and you know what they came up with. I was pretty happy. It was just, uh, you know, it was good for me just to see what people thought about my journey and, you know, the way the story was put together. So I was pretty happy. Now, let me ask you first: When did you decide, and why did you decide to write the book? Um, wow, you know, writing writing has always been something I, you know, wanted to do since I was a kid. I've always wanted to be a writer, but, um, you know, my mother actually encouraged me to uh, write the book. I really didn't want to write it because I'm very personal. I don't like my personal life being out there. But, um, you know, she basically told me to write the book uh, because of the people that helped me throughout my journey who, you know, these these people, their story will never be told. So, you know, I was the one to tell it. And, um, you know, she kind of convinced me, and it made sense. You know, it would have been selfish for me not to, to write the book at that at that point in my life. So I decided to just put the, you know, put the pencil paper um, and just, you know, just think about stuff from my childhood and think about stuff from my journey, and it all came together. Now, a brief background story for the audience. You're born in Nigeria. You come to the city yeah. of Boston at the age of 11. Did you always have a – I know this. I read the book, but for the audience. You had a love of basketball. How did that start from Nigeria to Boston, this basketball love? Uh, well, the basketball love started out with, um, you know, obviously, Akeem Olajuwon was a Nigerian guy. And, uh, you know, he was a big star back then. But my dad used to uh, travel to America for work and come back with these VHS tapes of this vintage basketball, you know, Oscar Robinson, Earl Monroe, um, just old stuff, Dr. J, Larry Bird, and, um, you know, we used to pop it in the VHS and we used to watch it, <laughs> and we we were just fascinated by it, you know. And um, you know, we just you know one day put the you know the milk crate up in the in the in the backyard on top of the light pole and nailed it there. We didn't even know what height it was. We just you know kept putting it higher and higher as time grew, and we just started playing, you know, shooting with a soccer ball, and we were just having fun to be honest with you. Okay, now you play basketball. You go to Alcorn State, Steve McNair, and. You go overseas to continue your basketball career. What countries offered you a contract? Um, coming out of college, um, I had you know several um, offers. I had a U.S. minor league. I had um, France. I had you know Germany. You know, good countries, Italy, stuff like that. But um, you know, I've always wanted to travel the world. I was born in another country, um, and I wanted just to just experience everything, experience different different languages, experience different people. And, you know, when the opportunity came, I wanted to further my basketball career, and I couldn't really get a job as far as the NBA. Um, I was happy to go to Europe to play. You know, <laughs> I was ecstatic about the whole, the whole uh, opportunity. Now, let me ask you this. Let's just forward right away. How did Alex Awumi end up in Libya? <laughs> Alex Awumi ended up in Libya. <laughs> um, it was 2010. And I took a contract in Macedonia, and I was in a situation, you know, I was in a situation I didn't want to be in. It was uncomfortable. Um, I was in a country in Macedonia, the capital of Skopje, which, do, which does have great people, don't get me wrong, but, you know, I just like to be comfortable when I'm doing my job, as anybody else would, you know. And uh, the situation wasn't good, so, you know, I you know, talked to my agent. I wanted to get out of uh, Macedonia. 
And uh, right away, instead of me going home, he told me, listen, you could go to Libya. They, you know, they need guys like you. They know you. Um, they're willing to pay you more money than you're making here. You get to further your career. And you get, like I said, I get to see the world. I get to go back to Africa. Um, and I jumped right at, I jumped right at the opportunity. And I was happy to. I was really happy to jump at it. Now, let me get back to it because you mentioned Macedonia. You dealt with a lot of, I don't know if you want to speak about, a lot of race issues there, didn't you? Because they're known to be racist. And did you deal with a lot of racism there in Macedonia before going to Libya? Yeah, but yeah, you know, the, you know, the, the city I was in, Skopje, in Macedonia, first of all, it's a, it's a great country. Um, it's a beautiful country. Um, the culture is great. The people are great. Uh, but, you know, it was just this particular time. I don't know what was going on. Maybe it's just a bad <laughs> luck I brought along with me. <laughs> I brought along, I brought along some bad luck. So, um, you know, it, me and my teammates, I had uh, four African-American teammates on my team, and we were, you know, they were racial slurs thrown at us. There were things thrown at us on the court. Uh, we were called gorillas, you know, because we were good. We were one of the better teams. So people, mm-hmm. you know, hate, you know, this team coming in. And then we had a bunch of Albanians on our team. And, you know, since the Cold War, the Albanians don't get along with some other countries in Eastern Europe. And, um, you know, a lot of people, then you know, kind of looked down on us. And uh, it was tough on us. It was real tough on us. And, you know, there was no way for me personally to continue my career in that type of situation because, I'm not just fair for my life. I'm fair for what I could do to somebody else. So I had to get out of there as soon as possible. Now, you said you're heading to Libya, back to Africa. Now, did you know, your book, there was a, an interesting point in the book. Now, did you know one of the dangers of heading back to Libya? And also, let me know if I'm correct. You, and I, I don't want to sound ignorant here, but growing up in Africa, Gaddafi wasn't really, um, I guess, labeled as an evil man. So you didn't have that negative of, a, of an opinion of Libya at this point. Is that true? Hey, that is, that is that's absolutely true. I I I didn't go in there thinking, oh, I'm about to go in here and you know be living in a country which has a dictator, a dictatorship. Um, growing up in my in my country, Nigeria, you know, we had obviously we had a whole bunch of great political figures and you know great figures throughout the throughout the continent. But you know, Gaddafi and Nelson Mandela were the two most important ones that for me growing up. Uh, they did a lot for 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 the continent. Uh, Mandela. You know, just being positive and just helping the South out. Then, you know, Gaddafi helped, you know, rebuild countries, literally. Niger, mm-hmm. Chad, helped with Nigeria. And on the TV and newspapers, this is literally what I grew up kind of, you know, noticing. So when I was 27 years old, when I went to Libya, um, literally, this is basically what I had in my mind when I got on the plane and I got off the plane. It, it sounds silly, but you watch a lot of documentaries or you read a book about Pablo Escobar, and he's the same way. In that community, he was a god. He built them schools and soccer fields and took them out of poverty, so they didn't know the evils that he was creating. Can you can you say that's pretty much similar? That's it's pretty much similar. I tell people this all the time. You know, obviously I watch a lot of documentaries, but, you know, Pablo Escobar was literally the same way. He was, you know, he smiled at you, helped the kids, you know, re- literally rebuilt the soccer federation um, in Colombia. And it was basically the same thing for Gaddafi. You know, he loved the sports. His son, his son was uh, head of the athletic federation in Libya, who was also a professional. Uh, I say football. Some of us say soccer. Soccer player in the country. And these guys actually they put in a lot of work into rebuilding the sport for the country. And they wanted you know good players, respectable players, guys that would literally mesh with the communities playing in their countries if they were foreigners. Like you know, they brought in a guy like me who I took a liking into our junior team and was coaching these under-17 players and literally had, you know, had was going to have years and years for me to live in Libya to help develop the program. But uh, obviously everybody knows the end of the story. But, you know, it's just, you know, it was it was a great opportunity when I was going there. You know, I had I had no negative, no negative thoughts about what I was going into. Now, you go into Benghazi, and before the Civil War, which obviously we're going to get to, was there ever an oh crap moment like, wait a minute, what did I just walk into? Did that moment ever appear to you? Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I had a couple of those, but um, one of them was when I actually first got to practice. And um, I got to my first practice and I saw some of my teammates battered and bruised. And I was like, you know, I know the game gets physical in practice, but I was like, man, this, this looks like people are literally being on these guys. Like, this isn't like, oh, I'm going to elbow you because you messed with me on that last play. 
this is like some real, this is like real stuff here. And I was like, man, like, I don't know about this. So obviously you ask questions and, uh, you know, you figure out what happened um, to these guys. But that was like my first moment. I was like, oh, man, maybe I think I made, you know, I got to rethink this situation. I'm going to just see how this plays out for the next <laughs> for the next couple of weeks. If it doesn't go my way, then I got to head back home. Now, you're saying now, I, if, I think it was in the book or maybe something else I read about you. The players were, besides the morale, of course, you know, they're beaten, they're threatened. They were, they weren't getting paid if they were losing. Is that correct? Yeah, they, actually, the um, the local players, you know, great guys. Um, you know, they, they their salaries were withheld. These were these were grown men, actually older than me. These were guys with literally, you know, kids. I mean, two, three kids, wives. You know, flats, apartments they had to pay for, and these guys weren't getting paid because you know. They weren't winning, and this was, you know, you know, they set a standard for this team. You know, the team I was playing for was, you know, the Gaddafi family. This is their baby in Benghazi. They built this team up from a long time ago. Uh, they wore the country's colors, green and white. Um, and, you know, they were, you know, losing. You know, they were like, we lost. We're losing? Okay, you're not getting paid. You get paid when you win. And, you know, sometimes it happens like that in some countries, to be honest with you. Um <laughs> but, you know, the guys who were imported, uh, you know, let's say Americans or some of the, the better professional talent, they make sure they get paid because they don't want them to be unhappy because we of have course. a voice, right? We have a voice, whereas local players in Libya won't have a voice. I could get back to um, other countries or other people through Facebook or through Twitter or through anything else, other social media to, to bash a team or bash a, a league or anything. It's easy for me to do that, whereas it's pretty hard for the local guys to do that. And, um, you know, that's just basically the way to doubt. It was smart on their part. But um, me as a guy coming in who wants to always hang out with my teammates and, and wants to get to know better people, more people, um, you know, I didn't, I, wasn't, I didn't really understand that whole situation. Now, let me recap for the audience what's going on. Alex Wumi, incredibly talented basketball player, traveling the world, getting paid to play the sport he loves. You're playing in Libya for Gaddafi's team. And now I hope everyone's sitting down because take everyone what happened. I think it was either Valentine's Day or February 17th. Take me through what happens. <laughs> I wish it was Valentine's Day. Okay. Um, you know, it, it, <laughs> yeah, it was It was uh, the 17th of February. I remember it was a Thursday. And, um, you know, basically we that weekend we were going to play, I think, the number one team. We were one and two, so they were our rivals. We were going to play them. Um in in Benghazi. So, you know, we had this big practice and I was kind of focused about the game. So that morning I wanted to get up, get up early with my coach, you know, and do like a personal workout. And, um, you know, I was blessed for them to give me a driver. You know, they had me a driver. Um, and, you know, I called this guy. Um, he didn't pick up. He wasn't there to pick me up at 830 in the morning. And literally, I you know, I, obviously I didn't know something was wrong. I was late for the workout, and I didn't want my coach to be upset with me. So I said, I called him. I said, Coach, he didn't show up. I'm sorry, but I walked in. It's going to take me 20 minutes. And he kind of was like, are you crazy? Do you see what's going on outside your window? It was like one of those situations. I was like, no, I haven't. I, got, I just literally woke up. And I go to and I hang up the phone. I go to my rooftop, <clears throat> and um, I see the protesters, and I call him. He said, listen. The league is canceled, practice is canceled, everything. People are trying to get out of the country. It's going to get bad. And in my mind, I'm like, and, you know, nobody's going to go against this regime. You know what I'm saying? You know, that, that's the way of I'm course thinking. Not, yeah. And he's like, yeah, and he's like, he's like, oh, I'll call you back. So I go back downstairs, and I'm just trying to get myself together, you know, wash my face, clean up, brush my teeth. And uh, literally 20 minutes later, I go back upstairs to the rooftop, and, you know, I see these. These protests are still out there. Now it's getting louder, though. You know, everything's getting louder. And um, I kind of literally see army on one side, protesters on the other side. Violent, you know, not non-violent protesters. You know, they probably probably got like one of those those um, those loudspeakers or something. They just talking flags everywhere, just chanting. Mm-hmm. Alex, I think we lost Alex. We'll, we'll recap. He'll call right back in. So right before he calls back, let me give you another recap on his book. He's beyond talented in basketball. He's getting scholarships all over. Obviously not good enough for the NBA. Very few are. There's a couple hundred players. He gets 
offers all over the world. In his book, he's a little more graphic about Macedonia. In Macedonia itself, he was dealing with so much racism. Oh, here we go. He, Alex is back. Let me get him back up. Hi, Alex, you back? What kind of phone do you have over there, man? Yeah. <laughs> I'm back. I got yeah, T-Mobile. I don't know what happened. It just cut off. All right. So you, you're telling me now you've seen the protesters. They have loudspeakers, basically. You know, not peaceful, but you can tell they're a little on edge. Yeah, they're a little on edge. Um, obviously, everybody wants to change you know, with thing go, things going on in the country. And as these protesters are walking towards these military guys, you know, the, the military men are also on the loudspeaker. You know, I, you know, obviously telling them to stop, to go back, and, you know, and, you know, the protests are getting closer. Now the military men are kind of moving forward. And I'm like, whoa, 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 what's going on here? I'm like, this isn't going to end good. And there might be like a brawl, a lot of people getting arrested. Basically just thinking handcuffs put on people, people are going to scatter, go back to their homes, that's it, boom. Um, you know, I, I, I see on top of a Jeep, there's a this this big, big, big machine gun. I mean, some of you see in the movies. And I'm looking at this thing like, wow, you know, this is really crazy because a man gets on top of it and mans it, two hands on it. And I'm like, what is going on here? And I'm, I took a sip of my water, and literally the minute I took it down from my face and put it down, it just rang out shots from the top of it, from this gun. I mean, literally just rang it out. You can hear the, I can hear the bullets drop, click, click, click. And it was like everything was going in slow motion. And I was like, man. What's going on here? You know, you think you're in a dream. So I'll be really, now, Alex, I'm, let me cut you off real quick. You're in this beautiful apartment. Like when you described it in the book, you're in like a penthouse apartment over there. So you're on this roof of a beautiful building, beautiful apartment, and you're feet away from it. You can see this. Like I think you described in the book. You see everything vividly from the roof of your penthouse. You're looking down on a civil war as it's happening. Yes, yes, literally on the top of my, on this rooftop. And I'm literally just watching people drop in front of my face, like in front of my own eyes. And I remember because it was so crazy because I'd never, I'm a, you know, I'm a, I'm a physically well-built guy, you know. And I remember my body being so weak. Like I'm talking about all the life just escaped from my body and just, it was like somebody just took all my, my soul out of my body and I, I, my body just fell. I felt like I just cracked like, you know, a piece of linguine. And I just <sighs> fell and my water bottle fell. And I'm on the corner of the rooftop looking. And I'm like, man, is this for real? Like, you, like, literally, I literally thought this was a dream. And I'm peeking up. And this guy is still letting off shots. And you can see people just falling. I mean, falling out of nowhere. I mean, they're not letting up either. They're not letting up. And, um... You know, I'm scared. Uh, you know, I'm you know, I'm yeah, too scared, but I, I was I was actually frightened, like like a like a child. And I, you know, ran back downstairs to my uh, to my apartment and I had to grab every any type of mobile device I could to get in you know, get a touch with somebody. I picked up the cell phone and I was, you know, kinda hitting the call button. Nothing happened. Um I was trying to get on, on Skype and get my internet going, nothing. It was there was I was basically shut off from everything. Um, I couldn't call my parents, couldn't call anybody, and I was just stuck there, you know, just like scared. So and, now, um, basically, yeah, you're a prisoner now. First of all, you're ground zero of the protest and the center of the Libyan civil war. You're now a prisoner. Basically, you're a prisoner in your apartment. Is that correct? Yes, I'm literally the prisoner in my own home. The, you have now. You have no. Yeah, you have. I'm sorry. Alex, yeah, you have no contact. You can't have any contact with the outside world. Everything is down. What at this moment is going through your head right now? Ten minutes into it, when you see that you can't make a phone call, you can't Skype, you can't email. What's going through your head at that moment? I was frightened. I was frightened. Um, at the you know at that moment, I I just was like, die here. Like you know, that's what mm-hmm. you're thinking about. You're like, I just don't want to die here. This is like, why am I here? You know, at the end of the day, this wasn't my fight. You know, I come in here, I just want to play basketball. <laughs> you know, this, is, this, is this is something I was, as a, I, I, I jumped up as a child, I used to be a professional basketball player, and I wanted to reach people with my talent. That was it, right? And, um, you know, at that point, it was like, okay, 
you know, this is what you want to do, but, you know, you're kind of stuck with us right now, and you have to kind of deal with what we have to deal with, so you're basically one of us. And mm-hmm. it was frustrating because I didn't want to be one of them. I wanted to be Alex Awumi, you know, a kid from Nigeria who was from Boston. That's all I cared about. And um, Yeah, of course. You mean, like I, like I said, I was scared, man. I was really scared because, and I wasn't scared for anybody but myself because I just wanted to go home and be with my family at that point. You know, you never miss, you know, I have never missed my, you know, obviously I miss my parents every day, but like that day, it was like, man, every argument that I had with my mother and my father, <laughs> I was literally like regretting it. Like, oh my goodness, let me just get back to them. Let me just tell them how much I love them. Because you take that stuff for granted. You really do. Of course. And, um, yeah, and um, I was just sitting here, literally just, like I said, confined in this apartment. And, you know, I was just like literally in prison. Like, you know, when am I going to get out of here? Am I going to get out of here? But, you know, at the end of the day, you know, at the end of the story, you know, obviously I made it out because I'm talking to you now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, <laughs> but it was it was more than that, you know. It was um, it was about the people who helped me throughout the journey. And, um, yeah, I don't, I'm and it was, now. You know, so now, Alex, you're, like you said, you're a prisoner in your apartment. How long, because there was a couple parts in the book that I would love for you to talk about. You're you're in the apartment. One, how long are you there in total? And describe about the food and the water because you you know you you gave them to your neighbor. Explain about the food and water thing because that part fascinated me because you didn't think you were going to be in there that long. Yeah, yeah, of course. You know when I, when I was in Libya, you know the thing for me as far as like you know we didn't have you know I was someplace where it was just a desert. They didn't have like a supermarket where you could go to or like a major chain. So, you know, we would go to these markets and buy food every day. And uh, literally, we were shopping every three days for some fresh. And uh, I myself didn't literally think this was going to last for more than three or four days, you know. So mm-hmm. I was kind of, on that, as far as food and, you know, rationing off, stuff like that, I was okay. I thought I was okay. Um, you know, at that point, the lights went off, the water went off, and, you know, everything was just literally shut off. And um, at this point, I'm looking at myself like, okay, you could, you know, you don't, you only need this, you just need to survive, nourish yourself. Um, but the problem was, my landlord, his family, who stayed next door, and he had literally four females over there, uh, his wife, his grandkids, you know, his grand granddaughters, things like that. And um, you know, they were over there by themselves. You know, he was gone and tripling on business, and literally, I heard the baby. Like, you know, the babies literally crying through my kitchen window. I could speak to them through my oh. kitchen window. And I'm like, you know, I'm kind of, I'm talking to the girl who I always remember her name to this day, Marielle. I'm yelling, literally yelling. And she comes to the window. It's like a, it's like bars on the window. And I'm like, what's going on? What's the problem? She's like, oh, the baby's crying, all the noise. We don't have no food. My mother was supposed to go to the market late um, this uh, this afternoon. Remember, it was the morning time. I was supposed to go to the market this afternoon. And I'm like, man, what is, you know what I mean? I got four females over here. I'm the man over here. And I, I'm like, you know, I'm going to bring some stuff over for you guys. And um, she said, okay. So literally, I, I wasn't even thinking about what I should give them, what I should keep. I just grabbed literally almost everything. And of course. And gave it to them. Yeah, and I was like, take this, you know, I'll be fine. And they looked at me, are you going to be okay? I was like, yeah, I'll be fine. Trust me, I'll be fine. I went back in my apartment. And literally, I looked back at my refrigerator. All I had was like, like, like a couple of slices of bread, <laughs> like a couple of things, like a, like literally two eggs and like some butter. And I was like, oh man, what was I thinking? You know, but but you know, it's just like the, the your, your instinct kicks in of you just being like a nice person, always wanting to help people, like my mother. So I literally was okay. I'm like, this will hold me off for two days, and you know, two days turned into a week. A week turned into two. And, you know, it was just, it was a long time. It was a long time. Um, you know, I, I, I had, I've had to, I, I had to do things that I wasn't proud of as far as the way I had to stay alive and stay alive and nourish myself. But, you know. Um, yeah, I, was, I wasn't you know, going to bring that up. Yeah. But my thing is this. This you're, is life. You're, yeah, I'm listening. You're at this point. No, out, sorry, you're withering, yeah, you're withering away. You're weak now. Describe the moment when you're like, okay, this is it. I'm 
I'm dying here. You're losing faith. You're explaining you're, you're very, uh, you have a strong faith. You're losing faith. When's the moment that you tell yourself, I got to go. I have to go live, whatever it is. And I want to part two that because this part was one of my favorite parts of the book for many reasons. You decide to leave. Again, tell me why. And describe those kids in front because I thought that was probably one of the most emotional and rawest parts of the book. Yeah, that, you know, I, I literally decided to leave because, um, you know, I, like I said, I had my cell phone. And, you know, me being a crazy person I am, I would turn it off and on to just check a signal, <laughs> try to call somebody, see if I'll go through. Like, you know what I mean? Like a, like a child, okay, let me try today. It's not working. And actually, last time I tried it, I kind of left it on. And out of nowhere, you know, by this time, I'm delusional. This is like day 15. I'm like, my mind is literally everywhere. I mean, you know, I'm seeing things. And I'm, I heard a, a beeping noise. And I'm mm-hmm. talking to myself like, you know, it just keeps coming. It stops and it comes back on 30 seconds later. I'm like, what is that noise? So I walk <laughs> over to my bag and it's my cell phone. And I see my teammate Mustafa's name. And, I, you know, I did, now I think I'm dreaming, you know. And I'm, I pick up the phone, I hit the button, and, and literally I think I'm in a dream. I'm t- I pick up the phone, talk to him, I talk to him with a smile on my face. And uh, he's letting, letting me know that there's, uh, there's some ways we could get out the, out, the, out the city. And I'm just going along with it. And, uh, you know, I, at this time he didn't know what happened to me. He didn't know what I was going through because he was in another part of the city where he wasn't around that all that chaos and all that, you know, all that stuff. So, you know, he kind of assumed I was okay just sitting there watching TV and eating. Okay. Um, but um, He had no idea what you were doing. He had no idea. So, you know, he had this, um, my team president had this plan of getting us out of there. Um, literally, like, early in the morning, like, real early, early super early. However, however, to drive and get us to Egypt. And, um, you know, we had to get to his office, to his office, and just talk to him about the plan and, uh, you know, the only way for me to get to the office was with some help, you know, at that point. And I was weak, you know. I decided to literally get dressed, head downstairs, and um, and try to make it over there, you know, because I was in this neighborhood where everybody knew me, so somebody would give me some help. And I of get course. downstairs. Yeah, and I get downstairs, and um, I see these kids outside, and, uh, you know, this is actually one of the parts of the book that, you know, when I wrote it, it was real emotional because when I got to Libya, I was like this big superstar. And, um, you know, these same kids were kicking a soccer ball on the street, right? And uh, every time I walked by, they would go, Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I just thought that was great. I, I always had a smile on my face, and I would spend at least a minute, two minutes, kicking a ball with them when I'm walking to practice. And um, on my way back from practice, I would get him a couple of Snickers bars. You know, I was like the big athlete, let's say. And these were kids. You know, remind me of my brothers playing in the street. And um, and as time went on, you know, all this happened. These kids had, you know, literally had to protect their own families and guard the street and the area. And so, you know, when I get downstairs, I see one of the kids with an AK-47. These kids are 10, 11 years old. You know, this gun, this gun weighs more than, this gun weighs more than them. And I'm, um, I'm looking at them and I'm scared because, you know, they literally were on the ground while all this was going on. So I don't know they, what their reaction is going to be towards me. And I look at one and he catches me and he goes, Ofosa, and they called me Ofosa because there was another Nigerian kid, but he was on the soccer team for the same club. And he said, "Go, go inside, like shoot me inside, like I'm some, like I'm the kid." Yeah. And I call him over, and I, you know, I'm begging, I'm begging, please, please, and I'm signaling him to come over. He walks over with this big old gun, I mean, big gun, and I give him the card to my team president's office, and I said, "I need to go here." Mr. Ahmed, everybody knew who Mr. Ahmed was. He said, he looked at me, he was like, Mr. Ahmed? I said, yeah. He signals the other kids to come around from the corner, and these other kids come in with handguns, machetes, and they literally take, I was too weak to run. They grabbed me one arm, another one had me on the other arm while holding his big AK-47, another one was in front of me, and another one was behind me, leading me through these back streets, 
head into Mr. Ahmed's office, and you know the whole time, like I said, I couldn't, I couldn't walk, I couldn't run. My knees were weak. I lost literally almost 15 pounds of muscle. I hadn't eaten. I couldn't breathe. You know, there was nothing in my system, and I was literally falling to dirt puddles, falling to like there was blood all on the street, and these guys were literally like like grabbing me up, grabbing me by the shirt, grabbing me by the arm, run, run, and I told them, I said, I can't. And, I, you know, it was so crazy because, you know, these were four, these were children. I'm a, you know, I'm a grown man. I'm this big, muscular athlete. And, I mean, you know, what kicked in my head at that time was like, wow. You know, it don't matter what color you are, where you're from, what language you speak. There's always people out here who are always willing to help you, no matter what age, race. And uh, I just thought that was just spectacular. Um, you know, it was it was scary because literally while we were going through these back roads, you get hit gunshots. You can see tanks on the other road. And, you know, these kids were ready to kill, literally ready to kill just to protect me, to get, to get me where I had to go to. And, uh, the, you know, I just thought I that was beautiful. Yeah, I, I was just going to say, in the book, what I thought you did tremendously in the book was you described how you got there, and you were you were a rock star when you got there. These kids, these same kids running over. So, you know, as you're reading the book, you go, oh, wow, all the kids looked up to Alex. All the kids looked up to him. Then you fast forward, and overnight, literally, they became men and soldiers overnight. And it's it's something we can never you, – you hear stories, and you'll see videos of little kids with guns and stuff, but you put it in the book. It, it was such a weird spot for me reading it. It's like, wow, like these kids who – a few weeks ago, a kid in the soccer ball, like, laughing, you giving you Snickers. Now they have AK-47s ready to kill for their family. It's That part was just, for me, so raw and so emotional. And that's why, I, like I said in the beginning, the roller coaster is a book that takes you through. Now, Alex, you're, you're taking a taxi now. You're going through these scary-ass checkpoints. You don't know what they're going to do because you're going through checkpoints here. Finally, you get to Egypt. You think you're free, and they put you in... Basically, is this describing it like a refugee holding camp? Is that a good way to describe it? Yes, it, it was. I mean, it was literally the biggest, what I was told was the biggest prison in Egypt. It was on the border. So, you know, obviously this is where you send the, um, the uh, you know, the guys who commit, you know, the, the drug crimes and kill people. So we were literally living uh, on the prison yard, right? And, um uh, so some of these prisoners literally see us from like their cells, and we just it was the thousands of people in the yard and in the front by the gate, and um, they just threw us there. And um, you know when I got there, me being the uh, the arrogant, cocky American that I am, basketball player guy, <laughs> uh, I just started um, I just started fussing about. I, I when I think about it now, it's about nothing. It was about some stupid. I wanted to go home. I probably told myself I wanted a private jet home. So I'm crazy, you know. I don't want through so, so I don't want through so much crazy stuff that I was just probably blurting out everything. There was a couple of f bombs in there, um, you know. That, you know, that's a universal word, so anybody understands that. And I, yeah. literally, I, I I had these military men and these police literally put their guns up to my face. Like, you know, you need to shut up, or you're going to jail. And at this point, I'm not, I, I'm not afraid to die. And um, I just kept yelling. I just kept yelling. And um, they literally took me downstairs. Um, really, it was like underground. So, like, what a lot of people call solitary confinement. It was the same thing. They threw me in a room. Um, disgusting. The smell it smelled terrible. And uh, it, was, it was literally urine everywhere, rats running through with cockroaches. And I was literally sitting in the dark in a steel chair for a couple of hours. And uh, you could hear people screaming down there, though. It's a crazy thing because, you know, there were real, actually real inmates down there. And you could hear people screaming. And I'm like, what? I'm like, you know, I'm like, I'm like they really had me down here with these people that probably killed somebody or this guy probably tried to escape the country illegally. Like, they really had me down there for two hours because they could. You know, they could. I'm arrogant. I'm talking trash. They could. <laughs> um, you want a private jet, of course. Yeah, you know, I just, you know, it was some of the things that I was blurring out. I mean, it was like <laughs> if you would have heard me, it was just ridiculous. I mean, it was just. But then you now you, I think about it, I laugh at it, but it was literally like I was like, what was I thinking? 
you know, I was stupid. But, um, you know, like I said, they had me down there for a couple hours, and I'm down here screaming, kicking the door. I could feel literally like rats literally running over my shoes. And um, I found this funny because I always, when I always tell the story is, you know, I had the $150 Nike sweatsuit on, and I had the $150 pair of Kobe Bryant's on, and I'm in a holding cell in the desert underground, and I have a rat rolling over my Kobe's cockroaches, and I'm stepping in her. And I always just thought that was hilarious, you know? Now, you got to explain, because I thought this was pretty cool with the bus thing, and uh, I appreciate you giving me so much of your time. I, I just want to get this one out. Describe the last ordeal. How you got out? You're in the holding cell, finally let you out, but now they're not letting anyone leave. <laughs> Describe how you, and I think it's whatever your teammate's name was, how did you guys get out? I thought this was a pretty cool story. My, my, yeah, me and my team in the stop. So, I mean, you know, there was, so there were a whole bunch of people. Like I said, there were a thousand people, literally. Different, different, um, different nationalities. So you had people from Senegal, people from Nigeria, people from um, Chad. And I never thought that this many people lived in Libya. You know, it's a big country. And all these people come here for jobs. And, um, so you had your embassy had to literally come from Cairo to come get you on a bus. So mm-hmm. some people had been there for two weeks, literally waiting out there. Some people had been there for a week. And when I found this out from a Nigerian man, he told me, listen, we've been here two weeks. They told us last week and the week before that our embassy is going to come get us. So I'm like, I go crazy. I'm like, oh, I'm like, oh hell no. Nah. I need to get up out of here. Like, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I was like, I got to go home. I was like, you know, if you know what I just did do, you know, you want to get out of, up out of here too. So, you know, they told me the next day is going to come, the next day. And now, you know, they make us sleep outside because there's not enough room to house everybody inside. So we're actually sleeping outside in the desert. I mean, literally outside in the desert. You have to use the bathroom on the field, um, there was literally no food. Like, they'll give you a couple snacks as you come in, but you scarf those down so quick. You know what I mean? It's just, everything is gone. And um, as time goes on, you know, I'm kind of sitting there, and I'm looking at this um, this gate that isn't guarded, and I'm telling my team and the staff, like, listen, man, like, there's nobody guarding that. Like, we could, we could kind of, you know, kind of take off. We just got to stay up till 4 in the morning, blah, blah, blah. And, um, you know, he thought I was playing, but I was dead serious. Like, I was, you know, he's like, no. He's like, no. I was like, no, I'm serious. Like, we can actually we can actually do this. So, you know, when he kind of looked at me, he knew I was kind of, like, going crazy. So <laughs> I kind of, like, looked at him. I was like, Mustafa, well, like, we're, we're doing this. Like, we need to make this move on this. We're going to be here for a very long time. There's no food. You know, people are actually being robbed. People actually being physically assaulted, women being, you know, physically assaulted out there. And I was like, man, I can't be here. I got to make a run for it. You know, so we decided to actually do this. We actually decided to jump this fence, literally, illegally. And um, we made it to a part of the refugee camp where they were only letting um, uh, Egyptian Egyptian nationals get on buses. Literally, all you had to do is have your Egyptian passport and you were good. And uh, we found our way to a bus um, that was going to take us to Alexandria. I was going to take us to Cairo, I'm sorry. And, um, you know, we got on this bus, right? <laughs> and we, we, you know, we're all dirty, muddy. Like I said, my, my, I, I'm in my white Kobe's, now they're brown. <laughs> I'm disgusting, you know. And I'm, I'm looking at this, like, and I'm like, I get on the bus, and this bus driver looks looks directly at my feet. Right? <laughs> like, yeah, he's like... <laughs> Yeah, he looks directly at my feet. He's like, no. Nah. He's like, passport. I gave my passport. He's like, no, 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 Egyptian. I was like, I'm American. I, I please. I need to go home. You know, I'm, I, you know, now I'm, I'm just begging people for, for favors mm-hmm. now. And um, he sees my teammate, and uh, for some reason he just felt bad for us, right? And I just was like, oh, this guy just, you know, he just, it's just pitiful. So he was like, okay, come on the bus. And we offered him money, but he didn't want to take it, which I thought was pretty cool. But I gave, we gave him the money anyway. Like, we gave him, like, hey, here's everything. We had, thank you very much. And literally, he took the money, then he sent us to the back of the bus, and we were under these, like, sheets. 
he's like, oh, the bus, you know, basically telling us the bus is leaving in a couple hours. And, um, you know, and this is when, and this is like a crossroads for me, right? This is when my, my coach in Libya, who was Egyptian, who was in Egypt, literally mm-hmm. called this called this cell phone and, you know, just wanted to talk, man. Like, just wanted to see where I was at, see if I was still alive. You know, this guy kind of felt bad for me. And what he had for me was he, he had he had a contract for me. So he was telling me he wanted me to play um, in Egypt. And, you know, I thought about it. And, see, uh, I, you know, worst I, case I scenario. Wait, how did you Worst case scenario was. Yeah. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was saying, because I had to cut you off. How did you possibly think about staying? And that's because the story should be over. The book should have ended at page whatever. You got the, the, uh, you got on the bus and you're safe. Your coach offers you a contract and you, you truly, literally thought about it. Now, take, I'm, I'm curious how you even had a second thought of staying there. Yeah, well, the thing is, a lot of people think that, you know, I just jumped at the opportunity to keep playing. What he really offered me was, right, you know, this was a, this was one of my coaches who, when the Egyptian revolution was going on, we consoled him as a team. He couldn't go back home because it was it was it wasn't safe back home. So he offered me the same thing to come to Egypt, come to Alexandria, be with my family for a couple of days, think about it, and if you don't, we'll, we'll put you on a plane personally. We'll pay for your ticket back home. And I just felt like I just needed to. Something told me to just listen to this man, right? You know, this is the man who I just thought highly of. I looked up to. And I was like, you know, worst case, I'll get to Alexandria. I need to cool down for a couple minutes. I just don't want to go back to America and have my family see me like this. You know, my head's messed up. I'm delusional. So I went there. I went to Alexandria, Egypt, and, um, you know, I actually made it to his house. And, you know, his family took care of me for a couple of days. And, you know, he saw me, and he saw the state I was in. I was mm-hmm. talking to myself at the same time, answering myself. Um, yeah, I just didn't, I just wasn't thinking right. Basically, if I would have went home, I would have had to be, like, in, you know, some type of really crazy care of, like, a doctor or something. So he was like, listen, you stay here. He's like, you could play. Maybe that could help you get your mind back together. And my first instinct was like, no, 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 no. I can't do that. I got to go home to my family. Like, how am I going to tell my mother? Like, I'm going to stay here and play basketball, right? Like, how was that conversation? How was that conversation going to take place? That's the way I was thinking about it. So, you know, as as days went by, I really thought about it. I said, you know, maybe I should try this. Maybe this will actually help me. You know, because, you, know, you know, I'll take a chance. I'll take a chance. Let me take a chance. Maybe this might help me. Maybe it won't. But if it does, it does. So, you know, I kind of I had to break the story to my mother. Um, <laughs> How that one obviously she didn't. Obviously, <laughs> she didn't like it. I had to, you know, break it to my brothers. My brothers went crazy. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, I'm happy I made the decision because it literally was like the first step to my, my rehabilitation just to be a regular person. And then I got to help people also. I got to help. I won a championship on a team of people who are, you know, who would have never thought they would have won a championship. They didn't have the confidence, you know, and I helped them give me that confidence, but they did something more for me, though. You know, they helped me smile again. They helped me laugh again. They helped me be a part of something, you know. And, uh, you know, I always thank them to this day for that. Now, so let me ask you a question, because I want to, in a couple of minutes, let me keep you on the phone, and I really appreciate you calling in. How do you get refocused? back on basketball? Because I believe you won the MVP. You just mentioned you guys won. You won the title. How do you get refocused? I know it wasn't the next day. It's like, all right, let me get back to basketball. Boom, I got that killer instinct back. How do you get that back? And what drove you? Well, that was tough. That was tough because when I started playing again, actually, I was actually I was terrible. You know, I was, <laughs> I was bad. I was literally a shell of myself because, you know, I, you know, my muscles, I lost almost, you know, almost 20 pounds. So I wasn't as strong as I used to be. I had to literally learn how to run again, how to cut. And a lot of people saying, "Wow, you've been doing this for almost you've been doing this for almost 25 years, right? Like it should be easy for you." People don't understand. Like, it, like I, my body literally went through shock 
for three weeks. Like it was like, okay, like we're about to shut down. If you don't do something, Alex. Like all the you know, my liver was like, yo, we about to be done, kidneys, my my insides. So I had to literally learn how to run again, learn how to breathe again. And it actually, yeah, it took me like a week, man. I'm not going to lie to you. And extra work and everything, running outside in the Egyptian heat, which is crazy, it's hot. But, you know, you, I, had to, I had to beat up my mind and get my mind back for me to get my body back and my game back. And that was the first step. But it took me a while. I was, you know, I was pretty bad. My teammates were like, wow, this is the guy. This is the professional guy who, who was literally scoring 30 points a night. This is him. He's not that good. So, I, you know, it took me a while to show them, you know, because obviously they didn't know what I went through. I had to literally explain to them, or the coach had to explain to them what I had been through, and then they got it, you know. But, I mean, you know, like I said, those are the steps I had to get back. Now, Alex, let me hit you up with some personal questions now. And let me say, you exceeded. I read your book. I reached out to you a while ago. I'm like, man, I want to interview them. And you were beyond gracious. You wrote right back. We've been in contact, texting and stuff. You told the story tremendously. Now, I always ask a few personal questions, okay? Right now, you come to New York City, me and you are hanging out. Press somebody. Who's the coolest person, most impressive person in your phone? Now, you can take your cell phone out, whip it out, and text them. Who's the coolest person in your phone right now? (laughs) The coolest person in my phone. Wow. I have a lot of cool people. If I'm trying to impress a girl, what am I trying to yeah, do? Yeah, we, 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 we listen. Here's how we always, it's funny. I've interviewed a ton of people. I think over 100 different athletes. Everyone's like, all right, if I'm going to try and impress a girl, it's this one. But if I'm going to impress the guys, it's this one. So give me both. <laughs> uh, if I'm trying to impress a girl, it would be uh, Kenny Warmalt. He's like a, okay. like a big-time actor in uh, Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And he's a good friend of mine. So if I'm trying to impress a girl, I'd be like, yo, this is my guy, Kenny Warmold. He's been a footloose. You know, he's been in all these movies. You know, he's you know, a handsome guy. I know him. This is my guy. That's how I do it. And how about if you want to press the guys? Because the guys care more about the guys. So who do you want? Are you going to press yeah, the guys? Yeah, 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 yeah. But, I mean, if I'm trying to, you know, if I'm trying to press, you know, a couple dudes to see how I got status, you know, I'm trying to think. I have a couple friends. I have one of my best friends plays for the Atlanta Falcons. Um He's actually one, like one of like one of the good players in the NFL. I'll probably text him or. Hmm. Well, who's your player? Who's your boy in the Falcons? Uh, Tyson Jackson. Okay. He's a uh, defensive tackle. Yeah, that's, a, that's a really good one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's number three pick, 2009 draft. So yeah, that's like my best friend. You know, he lives close to me in Atlanta. Um, but, I, you know, I think that's about I have a lot of cool people on my phone. Like, I have a lot of people on my phone that people probably wouldn't think I would hang out with, um, uh-huh. like entertainers, rappers, um, you know, athletes. Um, yeah, I have a lot of people on my phone. Um, All right. I get your role. This is pretty good. Now, let me ask you this. Did you ever nah. meet Gaddafi? <laughs> is that what? Did you ever meet Gaddafi? No, I never, no, I never met Gaddafi. And the crazy thing was, we were supposed to have literally uh, like a team dinner mm-hmm. at his house, like two weeks after it was scheduled and everything. But I met in some Saudi, which was Saudi was like the next in line, you know. Um, he was like the guy who took care of all the sport in the um, in the country. And there was actually like a, a, a Brian Gumble piece that was done on Saudi, I think like two years ago, about his lavish lifestyle. You know, he paid 50 cents a million dollars to rap at his birthday party, paid Beyonce a million dollars to sing at his wife's birthday party. So he was like the next in line. And he was like a big figure out there. He's like as big as his dad out there. So when people saw me shake his hand, you know, at the time I didn't know him. But people were yeah. like, wow. You know, it was like, it was like shaking President Obama's hand. I was like, wow. I mean, you got us a dinner at their house? Like, this is crazy. Yeah, it was, just, like, it, was, it was big to them, but it wasn't to me. Alex, how about your favorite country to visit? My favorite country to visit would be England. My favorite country to visit, and hands down, because um, I, I just love the British accent, to be honest with you. Um, those people love to party, too, man. Like, the people in England love to party. And, um, you know, a, a city that was playing in Worcester, um, you know, I actually, like, they, like, the city, like, adopted me. So, like, you know, I built a lot of relationships out there. I had a lot of families adopt me. So 
I mean, I go back. I, I, I'll forever be like a resident of that city, and it's literally my one, like one of my favorite countries to visit. Hands down, I just love, I just love the bad weather, like you know, like <laughs> you know, like the rain, and it's just quiet. People are nice. Um, I'm not saying that they're not nice in America, but people just, you know, people understand me out there. Like, you know, it's like a big thing when I'm always coming back, you know. But I love it. I love it. Now, let me ask you two more questions. Are you, you still play? Because I thought I read you still play for them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This was, um, I just finished up my third year, but this year I will not be going back to them. Um, I'm going to explore other options in Europe. But, you know, like I said, that place is always my home. I'm always there in the summertime. Oh, okay. You, you're and, still going to um, play, though. Oh yeah, yeah, I'm still gonna play. I'm still gonna play. Yeah, I'm still. Gonna, these knees aren't that old. <laughs> now listen, let me ask you this. It's the last question. Is is it true that you're a Nigerian prince? I don't know because someone just texted me like asking me if he's really a prince. Are you really a Nigerian prince? <laughs> well, here's the, here's the story. Yeah, I, I am. Okay, I am. <laughs> it's a good way to end it. I am a Nigerian prince story. Okay. <laughs> yeah, my um, my grandfather Joseph Otiri Owumi. He was, you know, obviously people read in the book. He was, um, he was a wealthy man in uh, Southern Lagos. Um, he controlled forty percent of the rubber in Nigeria, of the rubber industry in Nigeria. And this is, you know, he was born like eighteen sixty. He's an old man, and um, you know, he literally ran the village. And his father was a prince through royalty, so it's always been passed down. So it's in our bloodline. It'll be in our bloodline forever. And, uh, like, I never told people, like, I never used to use that story and, like, tell people that story in high school. That's an easy story for, like, a guy like me to tell girls, you know what I mean? But it was just Yeah, like, of course, man. That was, like, something, that was, like, something, like, I never wanted to tell anybody because it wasn't like I was ashamed. It was just, like, I just want people to, there's no Alex for Alex. You know what I'm saying? Of like, course. my parents never told none of my friends that story. But when the book came out, uh, you know, a lot of my best friends, you know, people who I've known for over 20 years were like, what? <laughs> like, you've been holding this for months, all this time. We could have got some girls when we was over there. You know what I mean? Was, <laughs> you know, not that you look back on it, it's funny, but, you know, it was just something that, you know, I put in the book and a lot of people read and they asked me. Literally, I get asked that, like, every time. I'm like, yeah, you know, it's true. You know, but it's a blessing, though. Listen to me. I had an absolute blast interviewing you. Um, I'll follow you, you, obviously. I, I'll follow you, obviously, where your next uh, country is. And it's funny. All I do is travel. I just got back from three weeks in Europe. I'm going to Thailand for a few weeks. So maybe I'll pass across. If you're over there in Europe, it won't be fun to meet in Atlanta or New York. If you're playing in some random European country, I'll come to one of your games. All right, my man? I appreciate it, man. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for calling in, bro. Be good, all right? All right, buddy. Thank you. Thank you. Alex Alumni, I'm telling you, what an awesome guest, first of all. His book, like I said, Qaddafi's Point Guard, it is such a good book. He obviously told the stories tremendously, so vividly and so raw, but when he talks about those kids with the guns, he just does, the book's tremendous. You can get it, or if you want, just text me. I'll give you my Kindle password, and you can download it. But listen, thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, A few more guests coming on this week. A few athletes, a couple of documentaries that I've watched, and I reached out to the directors. I'm going to see if I can pull it off. I have a few authors coming up also. Diversify the show a little bit. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Have a good night.